So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we're very excited to be joined by Mary Ann Gudurapas Franco. Mary Ann joined the Energy Studies Institute in December of 2020, and she has nearly a decade of working experience in research and development, multi-project coordination and administration and event organization. Before we begin talking about the, the paper that we're that's the focus of today, mm-hmm. tell me a bit about the, the organization that you're a part of and what kind of work the Energy Studies Institute does. So the um, ESI, uh, the Energy Studies Institute, is basically a research institute under um, NUS, the National University of Singapore. So we are hosted um, under NUS. Um, but we work closely with government agencies uh, in terms of um, giving them policy papers and actually doing or suggesting policy recommendations in terms of um, sustainable energy transition or just really on energy in general. I am part of the energy security team, which looks at developments outside Singapore, which has an impact to Singapore itself. So more on what is the region doing in terms of sustainable energy transition and how it will impact local energy demand and supply. So it's basically a very short summary of ESI, but it has uh, a lot of things to it has a lot of things to do um, beyond that. Today, the focus is going to be on renewable energy coming from the ocean. This is called ORE, Ocean Renewable Energy, and, um, yeah. and we're going to be focusing on Southeast Asia or what is known as yeah. Sea. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. C. First, what are we talking about when we're talking about ocean renewable energy? So to simply define it, right? So it's basically harnessing um, energy from the oceans, not necessarily a vast, I mean, a vast amount of energy can be actually um, utilized or harnessed through um, different devices that we put um, on ocean space. So um, there are different types. In the paper, we talked about tidal, wave, salinity gradient, um, ocean thermal energy conversion, all, I mean, all these four major um, ocean energy types. Um, in Southeast Asia, it's basically more on the tidal and wave energy. But in North Sea uh, and, in, and, in, and in different regions or even different places in, in the world, there are a lot of like um, OTEC potential especially in Hawaii and those near the Pacific those near Pacific Islands maybe and again because I don't know very much about this stuff besides what I've read in your in your mm-hmm. work what is the difference between now I feel so stupid not knowing but the difference between tidal and wave I, I always think of tidal wave together so what are the differences um in in, in those two forms of alternative yeah. energy so um it's basically a, a, a joke <laughs> I mean among us right so we used to have we used to use the term at uh, tidal and wave together but uh, I'm not an idiot it's actually from my engineering colleagues but they they used to correct me um if I say tidal wave together because they're quite different so of course the the Tidal utilizes the energy and the difference between the high and low tides. So the wave energy is basically the movement of the water, the movement of the water in the sea. For tidal, it would be vertical motion. For wave, will be horizontal Mm. motion. So just to simplify it, but I know it's more technical than that. So tidal and so it, the tidal the tidal energy is actually divided into two types: tidal barrage and tidal in stream. 
So the one that I mentioned a while ago, tidal barrage, is you know utilizing energy from the difference in height between low and high tides. Tidal in stream is basically fast flowing currents that turn hydrokinetic turbines. So it's basically the same as dams, like the hydro dams that we know. Ocean thermal is more technical for me, but there is a conversion of electricity from warm and hot, a uh, warm and cold water beyond the the sea level. So as we go down the sea, right, as we go down the ocean, um, there is a difference between cold and hot temperature. And somehow there are mechanics wherein we can actually draw um, kinetic and potentially produce electricity from it. Salinity gradient is quite complicated. I won't, <laughs> I won't, I won't go through there, but yeah. Then let me ask, you know, in, in Southeast Asia, how much or is actually being utilized right now? I cannot give you like the exact amount, like utilized in a way that it is studied. Uh, because I think this is one of our first conversations, right? So how, how much of ocean renewable energy is actually um, being utilized or used in the mm-hmm. region? So there is a difference between the theoretical potential of the of this resource wherein scholars or engineers actually access uh, study it versus the actual projects or pilot demonstrations that are in in the region. So I don't have the total amount of it for, for the whole region, but I mean, basically from the paper, um, we categorize it per country. So for example, in Indonesia, there is about 510 gigawatts um, in potential, but in practice, it only has 1.5 gigawatt. So meaning in practice, the devices that are in the water right now only produces 1.5 gigawatt. And it's not even used commercially. So it's more of like pilot demonstrations just to prove that, that, you, that the, the device actually works. The device does work, right? Yeah, the device does work. So usually for these kinds of re- new renewable energy, as we call it, we try to demonstrate it first in actual conditions, in actual sea conditions, so that, you know, investors or even government officials or even policymakers see like, oh, there is potential and it actually works. So uh, Southeast Asia in, in that is in that phase wherein they're trying to prove or demonstrate that Tidal, especially tidal, um, actually works in the region because we are in Pacific. So countries like the Philippines and Indonesia has really a high potential in terms of utilizing tidal and stream energy. The technology is so exciting. And I guess after reading your work, and I, I should let you, I should say that the reason how, how I came across your work was that you know, we just finished reading, I don't know if you read this book, but um, the Ministry for the Future. Uh-huh. Tim Stanley. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard about it. I mean, the folks from ESI have actually been <laughs> telling me about it. But I haven't I haven't seen it. Oh, well, you got to read the book. It's great. Every, yeah. Everybody <laughs> should read the book. But um, in the book, he he talks about the, the research that you're actually doing. Mm. And that's how that's how we found you. So I think he, he found you first and then we followed up. So the, the technology is really promising, at least if. <laughs> At least if Kim Stanley Robinson is right, this is the, this is the future. Yeah. What some of the barriers, the, the economic, the technical and political barriers are. Yeah. And why, why we don't see every country running out and, and funding yeah. this stuff. Sure. Um, I just want to follow up with, 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 the, with your observation about um, this technology being, you know, the, the, the future, you know, for, for people who works in this space, we, we really wanted that 
to come across to public, you know, to wider public. Because uh, basically, I mean, the world is covered with ocean space. And in, in, in Southeast Asian region, the only mm-hmm. thing that connects us is actually sea space. So that is how we, you know, it's, it's more than the technology itself, but also it has a social context on it. So we, we share space, which we share speed, sea space with the Philippines. Malaysia is just a bridge away from Singapore and it's connected by water. So we do have, aside from the food products or the fish products that we get, we harness some electricity, of course, in sustainable way. So your question about barriers and challenges, um, I think it, in the paper, we actually categorize it into technical, economic, and political, and even um, geographical. So for technical reasons or for technological reasons, one of the main technical issues in the deployment of Ocean RE relates to the installation phase. So as you can imagine, right, it would be in the Northern Sea, in the UK part, New Europe part, it would be very big turbines underwater. Similar to mature energy industries like offshore and oil and and gas, the successful installation of these devices actually requires good weather and sea conditions, um, as well as technical expertise and knowledge, you know, to complete the whole thing. And one of the things that we discovered here in in the region is that the local supply chain is still lacking. So we have to, whenever we we do pilot demonstration, we have to import it from, let's say, from UK and from France and localize it or tweak it to be suitable to the conditions of tropical seawater. So the technical bit is that the conditions here in the region is actually very different from those in Northern Sea. So the, the water here is quite warm. So when you put something in the water, it corrodes easily. So what we call as biofouling and corrosion. So those are the, you know, the technical issues, environmental issues um, that we have to, to look at. And I think later on, we'll, we're going to be talking about the environmental impact, which is a different um, issue uh, all at the same time. Economic, as you might have guessed in any RE, right? Um, it is quite expensive. It's relatively new in the region and the projections and estimations of it are limited to laboratory scale and not on actual commercial scale. So because we don't have um, devices, a lot of devices in the water right now, our projections and costs just depends on what we know, right? In our study, um, the more that the devices are put on in the water, the more that we know exactly what the cost would be if we scale it up to larger scale or to more devices in sea. This is, uh, of course, this is because Ocean RE is diverse technologies. They have Tidal, we have Wave, we have Autech, and those have different cost estimates. Political is information is power, right? So there is a limited knowledge and expertise. So on the one hand, um, policymakers or investors want to want to know the potential of Ocean RE, but on the other hand, experts like engineers or project developers don't have the the supply chain or the devices to actually prove it. So 
those is like a, that is like a chicken and egg question, right? So who will start the ball rolling? And I think for academics, they took on the role on that, like, yeah, we should study this and we have to take it out. Um, but, and I think lastly, I mean, public, public acceptance is very important for us who are kind of like an advocate of renewable energy. The deployment of these technologies does not only depend on supportive policies, but really on the uptake of communities. When we went to, let's say, to island communities in the Philippines, none of them know what tidal or wave energy is. The moment that we say, oh, we're going to put something on your water, they're, they're very resistant because it might affect their fishing. So that is like the social aspect that somehow people missed out in terms of like, oh, we have advanced technology. We can help you. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's always trying to work with the local communities and trying to capacitate them and, you know, let them know about this. The, conse- the risks and consequences, basically, of the technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that brings us to what, what if any, are the uh, environmental risks associated with, this, with these technologies? Uh, the environmental impact, basically, is one, we can look at it as, as any devices put underwater, right? So it might impact the migration, the migration patterns of aquatic animals. Um, it's very, it's, it's, not, it's not rocket science, but all the devices that you put underwater would definitely have impact on how uh, marine life moves, the movement of marine life. So there are, I'm not an expert on it, so, but for example, the, the turbine itself basically produces a sound we're in some of the sea animals that we don't hear as, I mean, as humans, but some of the aquatic animals hear uh, that can deter them, uh, can deter their movement. So they go away from, from that space. Um, the other one that I am looking more into is the impact of renewable, of ocean renewable energy of users of the space. So, you know, we don't claim that this space, the, mar- the sea space is a very busy space. So there is fishermen, there is uh, shipbuildings, there are different users of marine space. I mean, specifically, I, I can give you examples. So for our installations that are located near the shore, it could affect marine life, which migrates to and from the shore. So e- example would be the sea turtles, right? <laughs> so you, you can actually impact directly their movements mm. um, and can actually cause um, unnatural build-ups in the shore itself, which is, this is very technical, but which could impede uh, the flow of sediment that could affect the marine ecosystem in general. There is also potential for leakages as of any device. If it's not so strong or sturdy, then it can actually just break up in, in, the, in the sea, which definitely impacts, uh, you know, how and the quality of water. Again, as I mentioned, it's an acceptability challenge as well. So um, you don't just deploy device and, accept and expect people to know like what it is. So you have to have a coordinated planning with different users of the, of the sea. Marianne, it sounds like there's many challenges, actually. As <laughs> a, a chicken and egg problem. So how do you how do you not get frustrated and and paralyzed and how do you know sort of what the point of attack is first like where do what do you do first do you first go approach 
government ministers, and then they take you to local communities. How do you approach this problem? That's that's uh, that's really a great question. I mean, in any new technology, right? It's always it's always a risk, and um, of course, we I won't say I I study that the, the technical bits of it, but it's really more on for me. It's really more of like getting the inform the right information out of course you don't want to you know to hype it up and you don't want to over promise and under deliver right so we need to have a solid academic and really like a, a, a rigid research on what the technology is and how it can be utilized so i think in in southeast asia that is where the point we are at the moment like um, we are trying because we know that there is a potential so we study that uh, but crossing from potential to the actual um, demonstration for people in this sector. And um, we're not starting from scratch, actually. So it's it's not the first time that people put things in water, right? So there are submarines, there are offshore rigs, mm -hmm. there are offshore wind, uh, which is as complicated as tidal and wave uh, devices. So we can learn from their experiences. In fact, um, before we did this paper, we did a roadmap, an industry world, uh, industrial roadmap uh, in Singapore on how we can learn from the experiences of oil and gas folks and even offshore wind. Now, um, there is uh, a push for floating PV solar. So putting solar PV uh, in water, like on water. So the synergy of these kinds of technologies, we can really learn from them. It's mostly like a trial and error. That's why um, we need on the external part of it, um, a supportive government or probably a policy framework that supports these kinds of things. And how do we do that? It's basically on um, giving them funding or grants. So the, I mean, the, the for, from research side, right? Um, we always um, have funding of challenges. Investing on these kinds of new tech will take risk, but if we see that, oh, it actually is working, then um, the risk will be paid off. On general, what we started was really just a platform in talking about ocean renewable energy in, in Southeast Asia. So when I was still in NTU, Nanyang Technological University, we started this collaboration among experts in different countries in the region, like Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, um, Thailand, and the Philippines. Um, we started talking about it and we said that, hey, I mean, there are different experts from each of the country. Um, and we didn't know about it. They're actually doing some pilot demonstrations. And I think this article is one of the results of that, um, of that network. And then we started to share notes like, oh, how do you do it? Like, how many gigawatts did you, how do you, how did you deploy this? And, all of this are just very small and probably mundane things as researchers, but it builds up. And eventually, we came up with reports that we submitted to the ASEAN Center of Energy or even to International Energy Agency that, hey, there's something going here, ongoing here in, in, in sea space in Southeast Asia. So it is really a process, right? It's a long way to go. I mean, <laughs> it was a... Uh, there was there was an industry player last time that we interviewed. Like, how do you drive the ocean energy industry now? Is it like um, you know a sunrise industry? Mm. And then he was saying like it's more of like three to four a.m. <laughs> 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 and it really stuck to me. You know, I really remember that. I really 
I really remember that uh, that interview and and he was saying that you know we will get into the sunrise. So I was like, oh, yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to put it. Can you imagine some government gives your institute ten billion dollars? That's the dream. What what could you do with that money? What would you do with the money? Um. Okay, the one thing, um, and I think it's it's not really tangible, but what we did here in Singapore was that um, pre- on my previous work um, in uh, on the previous institute um, was that we were given a grant actually um, to start and conceptualize um, the design of a tidal in-stream turbine uh, here in Singapore. And to note that Singapore is a very small country, right? So um, they are quite supportive on these kinds of, you know, living laboratory, as they said. We can do a pilot testing, like a demonstration, and uh, just put devices in the water and see how it works. And then you can have so many data collected from that single device. And that's what we actually did when we started here in Singapore and there was an opportunity to actually demonstrate in Indonesia. The good thing about the, these devices are actually when you are able to get the similar characteristics, the technical characteristics of the sea, um, it can be applied to, let's say, to Indonesia or the Philippines um, on, a, on a basic, uh, as, as, a, as a foundation of, of it, right? Because we are sharing the same sea space. So... If I would be given, like if I would be given that, then I would probably put like how many devices, depending on the scale, probably five or six uh, small scale uh, tidal in-stream devices in different locations, which can harness electricity. And that is basically a start of a really robust data collection and analysis, not only on the technical parts of it or basically how communities will react to it. I remember there was a study in Indonesia wherein, you know, they actually put devices underwater and more than the technology, the, the electricity being produced, they actually created like models, models like um, business models wherein um, the communities can actually profit from the electricity savings that they get from the tidal turbines. Because basically it will give you um, extra alternative energy, right? So... In this way, if people see that they can profit or they can actually take advantage of the electricity being produced, probably through, um, you know, powering up their freezers or powering up desalination plants or something like that, then, you know, acceptance would be quite greater. It's a cliche to say it's a really a multi-coordination on different levels. But I think to give you one answer is just to put devices in the water and test it. Thank you.